Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi everyone and welcome to LawPod. I'm Rachel Killeen, a lecturer here in the Queen's University School of Law and today we are back doing the PhD researcher series where we sit down or I sit down remotely with some of our PhD researchers and we learn a little bit about who they are, their journey to doing a PhD, their research topics and their experiences so far. So today we're joined by Shifra Kaur, who's a second year PhD candidate. Hi, Shifra. Hello. So we're just going to get to know Shifra a little bit and then hear a bit about her research. So Shifra, maybe just to um, introduce yourself, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to starting a PhD here at Queen's. No problem, and thank you very much for having me. Um, so as you said, I am a second year PhD candidate at the Queen's School of Law. I did the more direct route. I did my undergraduate in, uh, studies in law at Queen's, graduated in 2017. And then I continued on to do a master's degree at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. And following that, I went straight into the PhD. Um, my interest really came from my final year of the undergrad at Queen's when we were given the opportunity to do a research thesis. And this is when I first delved into reparations and transitional justice. And Shifra, did you always want to explore academia as a career path or what was it that made you interested in transitional justice and reparations and exploring it in, in that type of way? Um, no, actually, I had never really considered university when I was younger. I took a break straight after school and worked for a few years. But after that, I decided to go back um, because both of my parents are actually academic and they encouraged me to explore it. So I did an access course at Belfast Met. And when I was there, I discovered a love for law as it was one of the modules that we could take. So from that, I then joined Queen's University. and discovered that there was a great team in transitional justice and the more I read the more interested I became and I always did better in the coursework side of modules compared to the exams and discovered that I really loved to write about this topic and the um, undergraduate final year thesis was the perfect opportunity to experiment and see how far I could go and from that I did pretty well and was encouraged to take on a master's in that area and I loved it I really really loved it. What is it like being someone that's a kind of young blossoming academic with parents that are academics? Um, it can be daunting at times because um, both my parents are you know, they're very good at what they do, but they're actually in very different fields. My mom is a biologist and my dad is in computer science. So there wasn't a pressure of following in their fields, but there, there, there was the experience there to draw on, which was brilliant. There was the experience of my parents to guide me through the university, how it works, what to do, what not to do. 
So there were some intimidating factors of having distinguished parents, but there was also really, really great benefits to it as well. Yeah, that's good. And you can't have, um, you don't have them like looking over your shoulder trying to advise too much then. No, no, but I, I do force my dad to read nearly all of my work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did that too until like probably too late on and my dad's not even an academic. <laughs> um, so so you said that you developed this interest in transitional justice and reparations. What specific mm-hmm. aspects of those topics are you looking at yourself? My research focuses on reparations for female victims of conflict-related sexual violence. However, I have an emphasis on what a cultural lens can add to this process. Um, I discovered sexual violence um, within the transitional processes in my final year, and I was directed towards some readings that were fantastic, and that Queen's also has such a strong base of experts in this area. So there was so many options of where I could do, go to for questions and guidance. Yeah, and um, I guess in addition, you know, obviously it's great that there was this kind of support and everything. What What is it about this particular topic that is exciting for you individually? For me, I think it's the breadth of research that can be done. Um, Sexual violence being recognised as a war crime is only fairly recent. My original um, research was very much framed in an international criminal context. And the amount of research that is encouraged to be done or that needs to be done means there are so many avenues to to go down, to select. Um, And there's, there's always new information coming out there's always new conferences there's so many people to connect with who have such a passion for this area and because it's evolving so quickly um it's been a fantastic arena to be in Mm -hmm. so it's the sense of being part of something that's very much evolving and developing while while you can be part of that yes it's also um with the increasing um internal conflicts the, the need for this research is very prominent. Um, and when you watch the news or you read just even very recent history, the need for understanding and at this level as well is always evident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting, I guess, about your research is the intersection that you've got between, you've got this type of violence that's one focus and how we can repair incidences of sexual violence against women but you've also got this focus on what using culture as a lens brings to the equation and what was it that drew you to that and and what do you really mean by using culture as a lens? Um, Well through the readings and the research I previously had done I noticed that it was all very westernized it was all framed within a western context it was as I am myself, a Western researcher, looking at it through my perspective. But when you actually read the feedback from female victims or from people on the ground, it was that our concepts didn't always um, follow what people there wanted. My concept of justice, my concept of what I would want could be very, very different from from someone who's actually experiencing these crimes. So I find that there was a gap or an underexplored area that 
there is a cultural context that needs to be considered, but in the larger international legal context, it's not always taken into account when designing reparations processes. So I find this was a gap that really, really needed to be researched and more evidence given on how that specific cultural context could be brought in and add so much more to the reparations processes. And what do you mean by culture, I guess, as as the lens? Because I completely agree with what you're saying and the need for reparations to be locally informed. But what is it? How do you think kind of culture and culture, different cultures in different situations influence how we might respond to sexual violence? Um, this is something that I originally struggled with at the beginning because coming from a legal background, we have in the large number of cases, very straightforward definitions or definitions that grow in a very black and white way. However, I decided to take an interdisciplinary-esque approach to this and find that it is nearly impossible to get a catch-all definition for culture. But when you look at the bare bones, it comes down to local language, local beliefs, local um structure and um, societal structures and these can vary massively across not only nations but also within nations and different geographical areas and if you take one thing that might apply to a westernized context and try to apply it somewhere else it's just not going to work and if you also don't give consideration which i find largely for the local languages um a word that means something in my language doesn't always translate the way I want it when you bring it to somewhere else. So I think the big, biggest things are language, societal structure, beliefs, and especially the matriarchal, patriarchal structures. Yeah, I could see how that would influence it. I certainly found, even from my own research in Cambodia, that people didn't express violence in the same way as we might express violence, and that can really inhibit even identifying what the nature of the problem is and correctly identifying sexual violence because not everyone would be so not every culture allows for people to openly acknowledge that type of violence in the first place never mind talk about responses to it um, yeah and I think it's interesting what you said about how this can vary even within states and the need to kind of really think about geographies in a more local level as well mm -hmm. how um I mean two questions so first how are you exploring this? Like, what what kind of methods are you adopting? And the second, which I'll come back to, is how have you found this exploration of this new discipline? If we start just with methods first. Okay, so originally um, I had intended to do a theoretical analysis and then move on to fieldwork. Um, unfortunately, that's no longer possible given the COVID-19 situation. So I'm sticking to strictly doctrinal work. Um, I've delved into different disciplines, including um, international relations, cultural psychology, and just really read around the topics, but also drawing it all back within a legal frame. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. I imagine you're not alone in having to abruptly change the way that you're going about things um how, mm -hmm. how has that been and you know when did you make the final decision to cut the field work that must be fairly recent eh? yes um 
I have been intending for a long time to go and base my research within the Nepalese context and do interviews in different regions of Nepal. Um, so it was only fairly recently that that had changed. But as you said, I'm most definitely not alone in that. Um, so it changed the structure of my research very much. And even to the structure of my thesis has had to be rethought. Um, that must be really difficult. I get, I was just thinking to myself, it's probably too early to even ask you how that's going because it's probably something that's very much evolving. Um, but how are you feeling about your thesis now, I guess? Um, I, wa I was sad at the start because a big draw for me to do a PhD was the chance to do field work. But now that I've had time with it, the chance to now move out of the Nepalese context and situate it more internationally, more broadly. Um, it means my research can be used by many other countries. Hopefully it'll have more of a scope. Um, I've had great support from my supervisors in this change. And the, the ability to now delve so much more into the theory has been really exciting for me because so much prep is given to fieldwork that now I can use that time to read more broadly, give a more in-depth analysis and have a lot more confidence in what I'm writing as its applicability to broader contexts. Yeah, so you, yeah. And how are you finding that process? You know, you'd said there about you started off with this fairly dry kind of legal-ish approach to culture and now you're drawing from all these different disciplines. What has that been like as a predominantly legal scholar? It's been, it's been really interesting. I've really, really enjoyed it. Going from the legal context, which can be quite dry sometimes, to all these different fields and meeting scholars from these fields, including I um, was very lucky I got to do a course in, in Oslo with the PRIO, and I made a, met a lot of political scientists and their understanding of definitions and that they can be quite loose and their perspective on culture, their, even their perspective on sexual violence and conflict was so different to my own that it really made me be a more open-minded researcher. It showed me that different disciplines, whilst we might research the same things, can have completely different perceptions and that you have to be aware of those to be able to make your research more applicable to so many more people and that it really helps you grow your ideas when you look outside your own discipline. Yeah, that's lovely, Shifra, yeah. And it just shows as well the value of having these kind of um, networking opportunities as well. Um, and we had talked a little bit previously to the recording about um, some of the things that you had identified as kind of important for your own journey and you had flagged the importance of community. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, uh, I'm really lucky that the PhD community at uh, Queen's is so strong. Um, I'm part of the Student Research Network and without them during this time, I definitely would have struggled a lot more We've arranged weekly what we call shut up and write sessions that you help focus yourself, that you help support others as well. And then we have our weekly coffee afternoon um, for just a bit, a bit of a chat and a check-in. Because the PhD under normal circumstances can be at times a lonely journey, 
to have this community help build you up and also through your friends, through your networks, you find out about all these conferences that are going on, all these courses that could be applicable to you. And then you meet more and more people that could lead to, in the future, a possible collaboration. You meet people who have very different perspectives to you and can help you grow. So I would definitely say that if you're doing a PhD, definitely reach out to your community because there's so many interesting people there to feed off. And how, I mean, it's really nice. I've, I've seen you on social media with the, you know, shut up and write and things. And I thought that's really lovely and kind of been a bit jealous because I'm just trying to force myself to write all the time. And it's particularly ineffective at the moment. Um, how have you, in addition, like, have there been other ways that you've kept that sense of community alive during this kind of pandemic? And how has your experience of the PhD changed in light of the fact that we're going through this, you know, unprecedented time before the phd um we all had an office and it was there was a few of us that you know came treated it like work came in every day had our coffee break our lunch break together had a bit of a chat and that has completely changed um because so many of our community is international and many of them have gone home i myself i'm in the netherlands so the discovery of things like Zoom and Teams and Skype have really helped keep that social side alive, but it's also enabled us to like, we are doing our session about APR next week, APR differentiation. And these are all things we struggle with, but we're not always willing to admit in a big crowded room. But when you're online, you don't feel as vulnerable and you can talk about it. And the reception of these sessions has been great. And then we've also had things like um, quizzes and we've met each other's partners and it's just and families and pets. And it's just been it's actually been really great also for some of our part time students, because otherwise we wouldn't get to meet them. And now we've met so many more of our cohort cohort as well. Yeah, oh, that's really nice and inspiring. Um, and I'm glad, you know, because there's so many ways that this pandemic can feel incredibly isolating and it's really great to hear of you building these connections and actually finding that it's fostering more of a sense of community rather than otherwise uh, it feels weird to ask because it's such a strange and unprecedented time but I've been asking other students so I'll continue to do so I guess what kind of advice would you give to someone that was thinking of doing a PhD based on your own experience I would definitely recommend it if you are someone who enjoys research, enjoys writing, this is an experience of almost professional curiosity that you in a large part get to design by yourself. I applied for PhD and you know it's highly competitive. I got accepted and I didn't get funding and for me originally that was a red line. I'm not going to do it if I don't have funding but then I thought this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I might never get offered it again. And I thought I'll give it a go. And if it doesn't work, at least I can say I've tried it. And when I got in, the university was so supportive. My family and friends were so supportive. Eventually I did get funding towards the end of my first year. And it's been brilliant. And it's also probably the only time in your life when you get to have full control of what you do Whilst there are deadlines and milestones you have to meet, this is, as I said, professional curiosity and there's so much joy in it. 
And whilst it's a solo project, you also get to meet so many other people who have an interest, something similar or something different that maybe you've never thought about. Um, so I would say, give it a go. The worst that can happen is someone says no. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, pleased to hear that you found funding over the course of your first year. I can imagine it was quite challenging trying to balance, you know, the very real issues around supporting yourself and supporting your studies and then actually being able to engage in that kind of intellectual curiosity that you're talking about would you for someone that maybe doesn't have access to funding what would your advice there be my advice would be reach out to your community I was very lucky I am I got to work as a research assistant I got to work as a transcriptionist i and through those jobs I got exposed to so many more things so many more people um, interview styles, knowledge I've never encountered, and people that I would otherwise never have met. And there is that support system, there is work in your school that they're looking for people to do. Whilst I 100% admit it is very hard to balance getting income and doing your research, that support is there to a large extent, and that you can do it. Um, and that you will not be the only one. There are a number of other people on, on the PhD process who are also funding themselves and you also then have that to join in with and bond over. So it's it's difficult, but it's also very doable. Mm, yeah, thanks. I, and I like your general optimism and kind of positivity about this whole process because it can feel like in academia um, that there's a lot of kind of cynicism and upset um, and you know there's many of those concerns that are valid and real but it's good to just engage with someone that's still feeling quite like excited about that process and being part of it um I have one question that's just pure curiosity do you think that you will try to go back to Nepal and try and you know continue to do that research in you know in the future through a postdoc or, or do you feel like you have been kind of push towards this more theoretical approach but that might be something that you take forward instead um whilst I'm very much enjoying the theoretical approach I think that my PhD thesis will show that there is grounds to have interviews with people you need to get the voices of the people you're you're concerned about um so I'm hoping that in a postdoc or maybe in a different job setting that I will be able to go back to Nepal and do my semi-structured interviews and find out what people on the ground actually think, what they want. But I'll go there with a much deeper knowledge now that I have the opportunity to do the purely theoretical. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and no harm in that, I think, as well. I, I know from my own experience that I really leapt into field work quite early in my PhD and now I think about some of those interviews and the way I went around things and just feel incredibly embarrassed so <laughs> there's definitely no harm in being a more experienced researcher before you go into the field for sure and uh, well Shifa that are all my those are all my questions for you unless there's anything else you wanted to share about your experience this far um just that yes it can be lonely um yes it is tough but it's worth it. It's really so much fun. The people you get to meet are amazing. And if you're thinking about it, just apply, give it a go and see what happens. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Shifra.
Um, thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, our pleasure. Um, and yeah, thank you to our listeners. So you've been listening to Law Pod, which is an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. And thanks to everyone that has been engaging with our um, PhD researcher series in particular. It's a real joy for me to get to read, uh, reach out and talk to our PhD students. Um, our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle and we are funded by Queen's University Law School, so thank you to them. Thank you to Shifra Kaur, my lovely guest today. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at QUV LawPod and you can get more information about the podcast at lawpod.org. I'll include some information about Shifra's topic in the show notes. Um, and you can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel and this was LawPod. <laughs>